0: You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In the name of God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can have a seat church. Good morning. Happy third week of Lent. How, how those Lenten uh, commitments and disciplines going? Great. Wonderful. You guys look super pumped. Don't worry. Easter's around the corner. We're almost there. Keep your head down. Any clear headed person these days might look at the basics of the Christian faith and have some hesitations, right? Some concerns like, wait a second, do y'all know what you believe? Do you all know what you claim you believe? We feel like maybe those who witnessed Jesus, can you picture this, standing in front of the temple saying, tear this thing down and in three days I'll rebuild it. <laughs> oh, Jesus, where's your PR people? How do we get you back on message? You're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? And of course, Scripture, as if to like comfort us, says, well, look, he wasn't talking about the temple the, the building, he was talking about the temple of his body, like that makes it any easier. We're not talking about a major overall renovation. No, Jesus is claiming that he's going to be raised from the dead. That's easier, right? And this resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the claim that he's making about what he's going to do in three days, it's not like some outlier of the Christian faith. It's not some like optional part of things that if you're really not into that, you can just... You know, just put, don't worry about it. The resurrection of Jesus, his cross, these are central pieces of the Christian faith. Without them, there is no Christian faith. These are its bedrock and foundation, the cross of Jesus. We Christians, we believe in some amazing things. If you just pause for a second, think about that. Paul would sympathize. St. Paul knew. He said, Look, we proclaim Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks or to the Gentiles. For the message of the cross is foolishness, he says, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We say that with such amen and at the same time, such question marks, right? How is this message for some foolishness and for others saving news? What's the difference? What makes this news either total absurdity, foolishness, or news of salvation? What makes that difference? Is it maybe our intellectual prowess? Maybe those, if you're smart enough, it's not absurd, it's good news. Or maybe if if you're smart enough, you realize it's absurd, and no one would believe this in their right mind. Maybe it's our intellectual prowess. Maybe it's our personal wisdom. We've seen a lot in our lives. People have claimed some crazy things. I have the ability to discern and sift through what's true and not true. I can see through all of this. How do clear-headed, educated people, PhDs, because we got a ton of those. And by the way, it's super intimidating preaching to a bunch of smart people like yourself. Like, of all, I mean, what, a, what, a, what humor that God would choose me to speak to you and offer something helpful about the gospel. But how do educated people, PhD scholars, or just like mature adult people in the Western world these days come to believe in the cross of Jesus, that it's not indeed absurd, but it's actually the news of salvation? How do we come to believe that? I think the answer might surprise us. I think it's grace. We've been thinking about grace through Lent, about what are the things that save us. Are they the things that comfort us, that we would prefer, those habits that we have? Maybe it's it's a substance that really saves us in the moment. Maybe it's like alcohol, or maybe it's meat, or maybe it's, you know, watching TV. Who, Who knows what we do? So we give these things up, these dependencies up. We give them space that we would actually be recalibrated, sobered up to the fact that there's only one thing that saves us, and it's the grace of God. So we want to unclutter our lives and think about this grace, make space for the grace of God in our lives. Well, this morning, as we continue this journey through Lent, meditating on how God's grace comes to us and saves us, I want to consider how God's wisdom, God's wisdom is a grace to us. God's wisdom is a grace to us. It's not something we can work out for ourselves. It's not something we can deduce It's not something that, like, a number of degrees will get us closer to. But it's something that's given freely as a gift. That's what I mean by God's wisdom is a grace. It's a revelation that is given freely to us. So we ask, how do we receive the wisdom of God this morning? Deuteronomy tells us, if we look back at the entirety of the Old Testament, I'm not going to do the whole thing. Um, but there's some, there's some passages that probably come to mind for us about God's wisdom, right? Deuteronomy tells us that Joshua was full of wisdom because Moses laid hands upon him, imparting God's gift of wisdom to Joshua. First Kings tells us that God gave Solomon. When we think of wisdom, we think of Solomon, right? The most wise man the world's ever known. Well, First King tells us that God gave Solomon wisdom. And it was wisdom personified also who calls to us in the streets in Proverbs. You remember this? And at the city gates, calling to us. Unlike intelligence, unlike even reason or understanding or knowledge, which we can increase, we can like exercise that muscle and get smarter in certain things. Unlike all of those things, wisdom is this really strange, lucrative, particularly unique gift that only comes from God, that we can't work toward or earn the wisdom of God. So it makes sense that this gift of God can't be snatched for ourselves. We can't reach out and grab it. We can't earn it. But it comes only when one recognizes where it comes from in humble reverence. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 111 and Proverbs 1 tell us that. Wait, but hold on, Sean. What about like all of our intellectual achievements? Like, have you seen my CV? I mean, I've got, have you seen my student loan debt? My gosh, like I've got so much intellectual achievement. Is reason bad? Can I be a Christian and be like intelligent? Absolutely. You should use your God-given mind. I'm not saying that we should not be smart or reasonable. It's not bad. Let me read this again for us. And Paul reads for us, uh, writes to us 1 Corinthians 1. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not, made, God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. God decided through the foolishness of our, of our proclamation to save those who believe. Now evangelical Christians in the West, they've been reading this passage for I don't know for a long time, but maybe recently we've read this and devalued intellect and said, see, we don't need to go to school to be a Christian. See, we don't have to like use our brains. We don't have to be thoughtful and careful with, no, 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 a total misread. You're missing the point about the wisdom of God. The point that Paul's making in this passage is not to reject reason or to be anti-intellectual in that way. Not at all. (laughs) The wisdom of God doesn't come from us. That's the point. Or even our smartest people that we could say, but have you met this guy? You should listen to his podcast. The wisdom of God does not come from us, it's revealed. Despite us, in fact. Let me time out. How far has the wisdom of humanity gotten us, really? Like, how are we doing? Let's just check in really quick. I mean, there's been some progress, but my goodness, we still have, no matter how much progress we make, we've always still have a mess on our hands. Look at the world. The wisdom of God, unlike the wisdom of the world, is revealed to us despite us as a gift for our sake. It's free of charge. There's not much you can do to reach out and earn it. Nothing, in fact. And in this way, it's a grace to us. Now, why is this a point that we need to make or we need to hear? Because if the wisdom of God is a grace that's given to us that we can't earn, you know what this does? to all other competing contenders of wisdom and knowledge out there, it totally levels the field. The wisdom of God is given to those who believe. By faith, we're saved. The wisdom of God is revealed to us as a free of charge gift. For those who are super smart and for those who aren't so smart, it kind of doesn't matter. The wisdom of God is given to us as a gift of grace if we would seek it, if we would ask for it, if we would pray, God, reveal your wisdom to me. This is such good news if you think about it. It was good news for the church in Corinth when Paul was writing to them. These folks, man, you, you think the church is messy. This church was, uh, you know, traditionally a messed up church. They had become confused about each other's statuses in the church, where each other were standing in the church before God. They were tempted to think, this is crazy, they were tempted to think that redemption... Redemption comes from possessing the right wisdom, the right knowledge. They've come to think that salvation is the product of believing the right things. They were tempted to think that redemption comes from possessing the right wisdom, mistaking salvation for the right religious ideas. you just tweak that, believe this, then you're going to be saved. St. Paul was seeing that the conventional wisdom of the world was setting the terms for salvation and therefore people's status in the church. Some of you may be thinking, well, Sean, belief does matter, right? What we believe actually, yeah, I'm not going there. Hold on a second. But for Paul, what's in view for him isn't having the right kind of theology that can save you, no. And therefore, having the right kind of theology in the church to secure a certain status for yourself in the church, no. Paul doesn't have, he's not interested in any of that. They were wrong to base salvation on what they knew. Praise God they were wrong. Can you imagine if we were saved only if our theology was right? Every single one of us in here has some jacked up theology. It's, whether it's a big thing or a small thing, we've all got some like messed up things. We don't quite understand the fullness of God. Of course, we're human. We're not saved by perfect theology. Praise God. Can you imagine a church, though, like this in Corinth who would judge each other, based, trying to figure out who's in and who's out based on their degrees, based on their paycheck, based on the ideas they do or don't possess. Can you imagine a church judging each other that way? No, we could never imagine that. Can you imagine being saved for the right theology, what that would be like? Man, Sean, but you don't understand. These people believe in some weird stuff, or they don't believe in our weird stuff. How could they possibly be saved? They don't believe Jesus is really present in the Holy Eucharist? Guys, that is amazing. Not a lot of people believe that. It's it's incredible. How could possibly anyone be saved if they don't believe in these particulars of Christian theology? Does it matter? Can they even be saved? What if people question the virginity of Mary? Oh my gosh. Are they in or are they out? You see how this kind of conversation can get stirred up and has been stirred up in the church throughout history. Paul doesn't seem to be interested in any of that right here. Those are important questions, huge questions, and they do matter. But Paul's not interested in that in this passage. Salvation doesn't come from our proper way of thinking. That's what the wisdom of the world might say. And I know even hearing that, some of us are thinking, oh man, I'm afraid of saying something like that. That salvation doesn't come from my proper way of thinking. You know why I think that is? I don't think that's because it's like an informed biblical position. I think it's we have got it so worked into our muscle memory that right thought, right knowledge, right ideas, being on the right side of the argument matters about everything, that that's like our saving grace or not. It determines who's in around. It's the same way it is with politics, right, or anything else in this world. Where you land and your thoughts will identify your status in a group. And so we've kind of brought that into Christian theology thinking, where I, whether I'm Reformed or Catholic or Anglican or you knows what, I'm, I'm going to be identified in some camp and my status is going to be determined. That's what the wisdom of the world might say. What is Paul saying instead? Paul sets God's power, which has broken the power of sin. Paul sets God's power, his initiative, which has fractured sin's power over us. It's power over the world and he rests our in or out, he rests our status, not on our intellect, not on our knowledge, but on one thing, the cross of Jesus. This is actually what determines who we are and whose we are, the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is God's power and God's wisdom, Paul writes, which alone has the power to transform and renew human beings and ultimately all of creation. That's the power of the cross of Jesus. Again, he's not discrediting the use of our minds. He's not discrediting or devaluing our thoughtful, careful thinking. But he clarifies that what counts in our eternal status does not depend on what we know or how much we know, but the one who knows us first. Did y'all hear me? What determines our eternal status Whose we are does not depend on what we know or how much we know. It depends on the one who knows us first. The one who died for us. Before we knew of him, the one who died for us. Isn't that incredible? The one who has promised us salvation and is the kind of God that always fulfills his promises. That's actually what matters in our salvation. Praise God. Not our degrees, not our perfect theology, but God's grace, his foreknowledge of us, his promise to save us. This is why Paul calls the cross a scandal. If you keep reading in 1 Corinthians, he calls it a scandal. Because of all the symbols of rescue, of all the things that we can look to and say, yep, That's our banner. That's us. I'm going to get a tattoo of that because that's like reminding me of my salvation or something. I'm going to wear that jewelry on my necklace. Of all the symbols to symbolize salvation and rescue, the cross was the least likely of these symbols. It was the symbol of political torture and death of the worst kind. The cross was the end for its victims. Not salvation and certainly not a new beginning or new life. That's not what the cross would symbolize. And yet, in the most humble formation of wood, God chose to shame the wisdom of the world by himself taking on human flesh and suffering in the place of those who put him there. This is what determines our status, friends. What did, what did you do to make this happen other than help put him there? You didn't think your way into God's good favor and his grace. It was God's gift alone in his son who died for us on this cross that determined and sealed our status as his beloved daughters and sons for all of eternity. We are saved by cross, the cross of Christ, not by anything else. What a mystery. I know even us intellectuals are thinking, well, let me like let me think about this a little bit. Yeah, yeah, you can think about this later. But for a moment, would you just pause and think with me, what a mystery this is, that God would do this for us. The cross is the wisdom of God on display. If you want to know the wisdom of God, look to the cross. It's confounding. It's so mysterious. No tassels, no letters before or after our name. Not ignorance disguising itself in a fake humility. Not zeros on a paycheck. Not our position or status. And not how well we are known or liked to be other people. None of that determines our eternal status in the kingdom of God. Amen. For some, our doubts keep us from the cross. How can I put my faith? in such foolishness that I can't even control and I, I did nothing to contribute to. How can I put my faith in something like that? How foolish. Maybe it is. You know, maybe this is foolish. But p- perhaps God's grace, to it seems unreasonable. Maybe it's just beyond the bounds of what we're intellectually able to like put in a clean compartment in our head and be happy with. Maybe, maybe the cross and its mystery isn't something that like intellectually jives with us and we kind of need to get over that. Rather than admitting God's wisdom is revealed at the cross, we'd rather construct something else. There's got to be something else. Some sort of like intellectual escape hatch. Ah, but you didn't say this. You didn't think about this, Sean. Or maybe we'd crack a joke because we're like uncomfortable with what this cross gives to us. Or maybe like some of us, we just throw up our hands and say, there's no way we can know. Anything, let alone this, none of this is worthy of our trust. And yet God's wisdom and his message of salvation it undermines all of those objections, doesn't it? It still persists. We may throw up our hands. We may crack a joke. We may have some objections or some sort of barriers, and yet the grace of God still persists, still comes to us, mercifully. And in the most unlikely and maybe the most uncomfortable of symbols, the grace of God comes to us in this death of our Messiah upon a cross. What a mystery. That our life's rescue depends on his gift, not our reasoning. Our life's rescue depends on God's gift of his son at the cross and not our achievements. Our life's rescue depends on the gift of God, of his son on the cross, and not the things that we haven't accomplished yet and will never accomplish. That is the uncomfortable nature of God's grace, isn't it? that God's gift to us through his son really doesn't have anything to do with what we've done or not done. The only question we have left to ask is what are we gonna do with this uncomfortable and mysterious and wonderful news of the cross of Jesus? What do we do with that? How do we respond? Do we set it aside as foolish or do we respond with an adoring faith thinking How can it be, God, that you love me like this? I don't understand. I believe, help my unbelief. Putting our trust in the one who has come to save us, even despite conventional wisdom, this God that loves us so. May God's wisdom pour out upon us this morning, church. Let's go before him in a moment of silence and ask that he would continue to reveal his great love to us. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.